So probably uh, many of us are familiar with Max Licato and his works as probably one of uh, the most thoughtful and prolific Christian writers of our time. And uh, I heard an interesting story about him recently. Uh, Max and Rick Atchley, um, who is a minister at a quite a large church, they were invited to play golf. Yes, it's a golf story. I normally don't do those, but... They were invited to play golf with a well-known TV personality and golf commentator named David Faraday. Now, I don't know anything about him, but you might. So they met for a quick bite before their round. And I, from what I understand, David, uh, Mr. Faraday, knew Rick somehow. Um, but they all had this mutual acquaintance that set it up. But he had never met Max. Um, he had no idea who he was. And so during the conversation, Faraday mentioned that he had published his first book, and it was about his life uh, as a golfer, and he had joked how it hadn't been making as much money as he had hoped, and he bemoaned the fact that his book wasn't doing very well, and how difficult it was to be a writer. And as they're listening to this, Rick says, um, well, you know, Max... He's a writer too. And Faraday commented, well, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And Max just humbly smiled and nodded his head. The ironic thing is that Faraday had no idea that he was sitting next to a guy whose works had sold over 100 million copies and had been translated and spread into dozens of languages around the world. So I'm sure Max at some point had an idea of what it was like to be a struggling writer, but Faraday had no idea who Max was and how successful he had become. And it kind of makes you wonder, have you ever been in the presence of someone and yet had no appreciation for who that person was or what they had accomplished? And I think that for many people who encountered Jesus, they had the same experience. And sometimes we do too. We're going through the series on John. We've been focused particularly in John's theme of Jesus' dwelling with people and among us. And as Chris talked about last week, Jesus privately goes to this festival And our text for today, Jesus is still at this festival. In fact, next week, he's still going to be at the festival, but it's the last day. But he goes privately because um, he doesn't really want to make a big scene, even though his brothers were were really trying to get him to go to the festival and, hey, you want to be well-known, you should go to this festival and make sure people know who you are and And Chris, you know, talked about how Jesus does end up going to the festival, but not on human terms, not because he's trying to make a name for himself, but because he's trying to do the will of God. And he does end up going, and he ends up teaching, and his words inspire a variety of reactions. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. You know, Jesus did not fit very well into the boxes that people had created for him. 
Um, when, you, when you read through uh, the Gospels, and scholars have done a lot of work on this, you can see it becomes pretty clear that they had a certain image of who the Messiah was supposed to be, what they were supposed to look like, not necessarily physically, but they had a profile in mind, and Jesus didn't fit that very well. And, I, and it really comes down to their own misunderstanding of, of Scripture and, and of God and many other things. But Jesus did things that didn't fit very well. He healed on the Sabbath. Um, he taught without being educated, at least um, educated in the, the minds of the Pharisees or other religious leaders. He was from Nazareth. I mean, they even say, what good can come from Nazareth, right? So they thought they knew him, but they didn't really know him. And thus, as Jesus points out, they don't know the one who sent him. And what I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time looking at how these different groups react to Jesus. And uh, I think John does a really good job of kind of fitting some people into some categories, especially to help us understand. Chris has talked about the category of the Jews, which um, John pretty much uses to kind of describe not all Jewish people, but actually specifically religious authorities. A lot of times when you read the Jews in John, it's not necessarily the, the common person. It's, it's the religious authorities, okay? So the first group to react to Jesus, and, it, and John doesn't actually even say what Jesus was specifically teaching. He just says he was teaching during the festival. But the first group is the Jews. And notice their problem, if you will, with Jesus is that they're shocked at how educated he sounds or how learned he sounds, even though he hasn't been educated. How, um, he's, how does this man get such learning without being taught? You see, they were astonished that anyone could be as wise as them without going through their system, without jumping through their hoops. And what's Jesus' answers? What's Jesus' answers? He says, my teaching comes from God. And if you were willing to do his will, you would be able to understand it. You speak from yourselves, from your own understanding, and thus you seek your own glory. And you have the law which you claim to know so well, and yet you yourselves cannot follow it. Instead, you seek to kill me because you do not know me. That makes me think, church, how often do we claim to speak from God's word, and yet we distance ourselves from being transformed by him? I think sometimes we have that tendency to seek um, learnedness, to seek education without transformation. And I think that was one of the biggest problems that these religious authorities had because they should have got it first. They knew. They knew what to look for. But they got caught up in their own glory. The next group that we see is the crowd. And these are probably people Um, It's not 100% clear. I mean, it's a general group. But these are probably people who have come to the festival from afar. 
just general population. There's a good chance they weren't from Jerusalem or at least the local area. Remember, this is the Festival of Booths. It was one of uh, the three festivals that were kind of a pilgrimage, come to Jerusalem and celebrate. So there were people from all over the place. So there's a good chance that they didn't know Jesus as well. And one of the telling signs of this is when Jesus says that these people are seeking to kill him, their reaction is pretty bold. They say, you're demon-possessed. Who is trying to kill you? It kind of betrays the fact that maybe they're not local enough to know about this plot that has been developing, to have seen the interactions that Jesus has had with other religious authorities. And so maybe they just, they just don't know, and they see a guy who is a little bit crazy because he's, you know, he's, um, he's suspicious of these religious leaders, and he's paranoid. <clears throat> so there's a good chance that they were probably out-of-towners. And Jesus comments on how they've seen one sign, and they've been amazed. And the last sign that he really did was back in chapter 5. It was the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And people marveled at this. And yet, instead of rejoicing at the restoration that occurred in this man's life, people seemed concerned that he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath, or that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. They were concerned about the breaking of their understanding of the rules. You can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. Do you think they missed the point a little bit? Do you think that maybe they were just there for the show? They had this um, concern for a false sense of righteousness that led them to miss a crucial aspect of who Jesus was and what he came to do, to bring restoration to this man's life. The next group... Um, John just calls them the people of Jerusalem. So a more local group. These are Jewish um, people who are natives to the city of Jerusalem, and they're clearly more aware of the situation revolving around Jesus and the plot to kill him. Um, Let me read through this section because this is probably the, the beefiest section in this, in this uh, text. So at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and, not saying, and they are not saying a word to him, assuming the they is the Jews, the religious authorities. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where this man is, where where he is from. So let me just stop right there because their their reaction is is pretty telling here. Um, Clearly they know more about Jesus and they catch on to the fact that at least so far in the festival, the religious leaders haven't confronted Jesus, Jesus yet and they're starting to make some assumptions. Do they think he's the Messiah? You know, they haven't, they haven't 
tried to rebut anything he has said. And yet, they don't seem fully convinced because they have this idea in mind that, well, so we know this, we know this Jesus man. We know where he's from. We know his family. And there's no way that the Messiah can come from Nazareth. We're, we're not supposed to know where the Messiah is from. And I think scholars are a bit confused um, as to where this idea came from. Um, perhaps it was some kind of folklore that developed over time that um, you're not, we're, we won't know where the Messiah comes from. Which is interesting because we have texts like Micah 5.2, which seem to allude to this idea that this ruler will come from Bethlehem, you know, um, and people hopefully would have known where Jesus was born, and maybe they just identified him with Nazareth. But um, it's, it's just interesting because we're not exactly sure where this idea comes from, that they're not supposed to know where the Messiah comes from, like it's some kind of mysterious thing. And so since they know where Jesus is from, you know, how could he be the Messiah? And it's interesting because I think sometimes we operate like this as humans. You know, when there's some mystery about who the Messiah is or or whatever it might be, we get uncomfortable and so we start trying to put square pegs into a round hole and try to make things fit over the centuries. You know, the Jewish teachers had clearly constructed some idea of who the Messiah would be that just didn't quite fit with what the prophets had said. And so notice Jesus' reaction. He says, you know me and where I am from. And it's a bit difficult to read the tone here. It's interesting that John actually mentions he cries out in the temple courts. And I think, um, I think a, best, a better translation of this is to read it in the tone of, of more of a question. I think the, the CEV translate, translates it well. I don't think Jesus is necessarily agreeing with them. Like, yes, of course you know me. I think what he's saying is, do you really think you know me and where I come from? I didn't come on my own. The one who sent me is truthful, and you do not know him. So how can they truly know Jesus if they don't know the one who sent him? Jesus seems to be saying to this group, you think you know me and where I'm from. Because physically they knew who Jesus was. They knew him as a man from Nazareth who could perform these miracles and signs and had interesting teachings, but spiritually Many did not recognize that he was from God. And Jesus ends by saying, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And at this point, people start to react really strongly because he's teetering on the edge of blasphemy here, at least in their minds. And church, I think this is a good reminder that our knowledge of Jesus does not necessarily mean that we know him. You can study and study and study, but unless you're willing to seek his will, to be transformed by him, to know the one who sent him, we cannot really know him. But there's also many who did believe 
John makes that clear. There were there are many who believed Jesus' claims, and they recognized the signs. And they said, how can anyone else do more than him? Surely he is the Messiah. And at this, we get to the next group, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees. Probably a more specific um, group of people that come from that same group, the Jews, the religious authorities. These were people who had religious authorities, but are um, mentioned more specifically, I think. And they hear the murmurings of the people that they're starting to question who Jesus is, and many are, are believing in him. And so they send guards to arrest him, but even the guards can't touch him because they hear what he has to say. And so Jesus' response to them is, I am with you only for a short time. He knows his time is running out here on earth. And then I'm going to, going to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you won't find me. Where I am, you cannot come. <clears throat> I think oftentimes we read Scripture and we can see how offended people were at Jesus. And we look out into the world now and we can look at how, how offended people can be of Jesus and what Jesus had to say. And I think sometimes we have to admit that we too struggle with some of the things that Jesus said. Not because we don't believe it, but because it's hard to take the step from belief to transformation, to living out what Jesus calls us to do, who he calls us to be. And so, in a way to kind of resist that, we all sometimes have this tendency to fit Jesus into this box. There are ways in which we all think that we know Jesus, but perhaps we tend to create a little caricature. And I have kind of this question for us. Are we trying to make Jesus fit our, the image we have created, or are we trying to conform to his image? The world does it, and I think sometimes we do it too. We've created caricatures of Jesus, and I have some pictures up here to represent those. We have a tendency to focus sometimes on a Jesus that makes us comfortable, a holy and distant and unattainable Jesus, the flannel graph Jesus, the white-robed Jesus, the Jesus who holds baby lambs, the buddy friend Jesus. I think sometimes we have a tendency just to leave Jesus up on the cross. We're most comfortable, which is maybe a telling thing about us, we're most comfortable just leaving Jesus up on the cross. He died for us, and that's our whole picture of Jesus. Jesus the activist. Jesus the perfect and holy Our struggles, our misunderstandings may not have been the same as the people who listened to Jesus at the Festival of Tabernacles. But our tendency to place what we consider to be important above what Jesus says is important can remain. And yes, one of those pictures was of Obi-Wan Kenobi. But sometimes he looks like our image of Jesus. 
Sometimes I think we get caught up in what's right around us and and what what we've created as a church, as an institution. And sometimes we miss who Jesus was. We miss these opportunities to know Jesus. And, And they did the same thing. They had their institutions. They had their systems. And it can be tempting to lean into what is comfortable. We get caught up in programs. If only our church has the best programs, then we would grow. We got to have the, the best programs and they have to, we have to have a program for everyone. In preaching, if we can just hear a great message every week, if I can just come hear a great message about Jesus and go home, that's good. Come back next week. If in singing, perhaps, if we can just sing the right songs, worship in the right way, in perhaps, dare I say it, our seating arrangement on Sunday mornings. And we miss what Jesus is saying. We miss what Jesus is doing. And we miss the will of the Father. Now, a lot of those things can be important. I don't want to dismiss them. But it's so easy to distract from knowing Jesus and who he has called us to be, and more importantly, who he has called us to know. The fact that Jesus wants us to know him is such a beautiful privilege. We like to point fingers. We like to put the blame on others. We enjoy shaping Jesus into an image that most comforts us, a Messiah who requires little from us. But what Jesus wanted people to hear and witness is that he was sent from the Father to dwell among God's people in order that they might know him and the one who sent him through a faithful relationship in doing the will of the Father. So I just want to look at just three ways or three times that Jesus talks about knowing him. The first is actually as a warning in Matthew Chapter 7, Jesus talks about knowing him. And he says that many will say, Lord, Lord, but not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who, notice what he says again, does the will of the Father. Just like he said in John 7. And many will do these great things, but he says, I never knew you. So, I mean, and some of these things, man, I've not, to my knowledge, I've never driven out demons. If I saw someone do that, I'd be like, that person knows Jesus right there. But even that act alone is not necessarily the same as knowing Jesus. Jesus wants us to know him by doing God's will. And it's not um, about what we accomplish. Another is from 1 John a couple different places, chapter 2. Um, he says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Part of knowing Jesus is doing what he said. We are shaped as people by being obedient to Jesus, by doing what he has commanded us to do. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. 
But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And then in chapter 4, John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. He also says it in John 15. This is my commandment, love one another over and over. Again, Jesus makes it clear the two most important things are to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love others. If we claim to know Jesus, it will be seen in the fruit of our love for one another. The last one is from Philippians 3. This is from Paul. So one from Jesus, one from John, and one from Paul. Paul here talks about knowing Jesus' participation in his life, his death, and resurrection. And he talks about, you can read the verse on the screen, but he talks about all of these great things about himself right before this and how all of it he considers as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. He had the best resume, but it was rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And he says in the last verse of this section, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, to participate in his sufferings and become like him in death. Knowing Jesus is following him, quite literally, and to being conformed to what he did, to his mission. I think the, the fact that Jesus wants us to know him is so beautiful, and it's such a wonderful invitation that we don't serve, we don't follow a distant God. We believe in a God who dwelt among us, who put on flesh so that we could better know him, who revealed himself in a way that we can understand and that we can conform to. We can take delight in the fact that we can get to know Jesus more and more through our entire lives, and we don't have to arrive at a position where we have it all figured out. We don't have to be stuck in this um, mystery and, and feel like we can never understand. He's invited us to know him. And we will never run out of things to discover about our Lord and Savior. And when we know Jesus, we know the one who sent him. Let's continue in our worship together.